Welcome to Cancel Culture, the business of law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Okay, welcome back to um, Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast. Um, so this week, <laughs> I've got Ben with me. Hello, Ben. How are you? Not too bad, mate. Both of us have had a bit of lurgy recently, haven't we? We really have. Um, <laughs> we've both been quite ill, so uh, but we're on the mend. Uh, things are looking up. So um, yeah, be careful out there with all these viruses going around. Uh, make sure you mask up if need be. Um, but yeah, uh, so. This week, um, not too much has happened, actually, but there were quite a few interesting pieces in the news, uh, starting with a, a survey that was published, I think, in The Times and in City AM uh, about basically junior lawyers wanting to do more kind of ethical work. Uh, so the report was published by Obelisk Support. Um, and it showed that about 75% of junior lawyers in the survey said that they would not join an organization whose values did not match with their own, um, even if it were offering more money. And about 10% uh, more, so 85%, um, said that they were looking to effect uh, uh, positive change in society through their work as lawyers, um, which I think will make sense to a lot of people here. I think um, we, we've got an incoming generation of lawyers that want to be socially engaged and want to do a bit more good um, any thoughts on that, Ben? Yeah, a, a, a few. The, the, the headline made me smile when I read it yesterday. Future looks woke as junior lawyers speak up. Uh, well, that absolutely covers everything, doesn't it? But I think the serious point is is this, and we've talked about this a lot, really, haven't we, with the, the, the Middle East conflict, that firstly, uh, associates and, and, and you know other people working in law firms are, are demanding two things. The first is that their firms have a social conscience um, yeah. and are prepared to speak up on uh, social political issues. And two, they expect them to speak up in, uh, in in terms of what they say should reflect what they they, they believe them, them themselves. That is, you know, that is really interesting. Not only are, are, are firms now expected to actually say something on, on, on major issues, but they're expected to say, have a, a, a certain viewpoint as well. And that's possibly what Jonathan means with his own in an inimitable style about the woke, woke, woke agenda. But you kind of know, you know what he means, right? Yeah, I know, I know what he means. Um, even though I kind of, I think a lot of young people, young lawyers would take issue with the word woke, uh, to be honest, I can see that. Um, but and quite frankly, I don't really know what it means. I think it's just a made up term. Um, so, um, but it's just really interesting, um, you know, that there, there is definitely a divide because I think obviously everyone deserves some representation, some legal advice, right? Regardless of what they're doing. But I, I do think we're going to start seeing maybe in the next few years, some conversations between lawyers and their clients around what, you know, if, if, if it's a deal that has to do with oil and gas, I mean, how they could make it a bit more green and that kind of stuff. I don't expect like major, like radical changes at all of people saying we're not going to represent Blackstone because they're investing in, you know, X, Y, and Z that's problematic. I think the conversations will start to change things to that kind of class of young lawyers that might want to do that kind of work. Um, so I think in a way, I think it will force clients to kind of rethink their own strategies and, and what they actually want to, to do in a way, hopefully. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting. And I, th I think there's a bit of a, 
probably with the older kind of partners and firms that just want to get the billing done and just, you know, uh, we'll see the commercial side of it. Um, I think there might be a bit of tension there, but I, I wonder how internally people will be able to find ways to work together on these things, even when it when it's a difficult situation. And I think even on the BD side, it's not just lawyers, I think even on the BD side, I think we'll start seeing in some uh, specific type of departments, people that will not want to work on specific projects or will want to work on things differently uh, just because of these kind of either geopolitical or kind of societal issues um, that they really care about. Um, you know, I, I, I see it in probably slightly even more dramatic terms than, than that. And I started noticing it during the beginning of the, the, the pandemic that, you know, voices of people wanting their firms to behave in a certain way and do certain types of work and crucially not do certain type of work. It's kind of began then. Yeah. And you, I sort of took a step back and obviously I was at Slaughter May at the time and I thought, what is this firm going to look like in 25 years time? Yeah. Uh, when, or 20 years time when, you know, trainees and junior associates in, in theory will be, will, will be running the firm. Yeah. What type of work will it do? What shape will it be? You know, it has been the same for 175 years or, or whatever it was. What will that What will that look like? And I think we're very much in the beginning of that journey. And I, the points that you make about decisions, who to act for and who not to act for, and this, this old thing of everybody deserves legal advice, whoever they are and whatever they represent, is completely out of the window now. Everything yeah. is a subjective judgment. And I think we're we're heading to a point where you're going to get clients who are going to struggle to get top tier law firms to act for them on certain, you know, on certain things. Mm. And I think that's going to become a massive issue. We're we're only at the beginning of that. You know, you've seen that with the big oil and gas companies, yeah. where you know Shell and people people like that, where the decision to act for them or in, in relation to fossil fuel um, matters, firms are wrestling with. They're going to get to a point where they won't because their people won't do it. And mm. I think that's going to be a, a big, punchy period of time for the, for the sector. And I think we're near, much nearer the beginning of that than we are at the end. Yeah. And in relation to that, I mean, there's another story we wanted to talk about today, uh, which was kind of an op-ed by Paul Hutkinson at Law.com uh, that came out this week, um, kind of on... The headline is, you know, the, uh, what was it? The, there's no. Um... He's yeah. I'm looking at it here, Meg. He's he's. It's a PC wrote right at the beginning of the week, actually, on the on the 19th. Um, he said some things are more. I'm going to read the, the the headline and the intro. He said some things are more important than corporate law. Uh, the the Israel-Gaza conflict and threats to the rule of law in various countries are putting the importance of daily commercial legal practice into perspective. He kind of makes two two points here. One. Um, is that, you know, with all our bubble that we exist in, you know, corporate law, litigation, M&A, private equity, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, that's all underpinned by law, but actually conflicts are as well. You know, there are rules, and we saw that with with Iraq, where the, the rules were not necessarily followed. And what he's saying here is actually the rule of law is really, really important at the moment, and it's pretty visceral. Um, in um, in in the in the situation in the Middle East, and you know we need to take a step back and consider 
that the, the stuff that we think about on a day-to-day -day basis is not really as important as, as as this in terms of how the law applies. And I think it was just a really, uh, I thought it was a really, really good argument that he, he, he made. Um, and then he actually goes on to talk about um, some of the things that have been going on in relation to what individual people have been saying within law firms about the, the, the conflict. You know, we've all read the stories of, you know, of certain firms rescinding job offers or even firing associates who, are, you know, who are, are critical of, 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 of what their firms are doing and not doing in relation to the, 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 the conflict. And uh, I was really struck this week by the fact that 700 Canadian lawyers, professors and law students, and Paul talks about this in his piece, had uh, cited a backlash against pro-Palestinian voices within the legal profession. Uh, and, you know, that's really, really worrying for me because it, 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 it strikes me that this is the first social political issue where there have clearly been two sides uh, that people within your organisation may see the situation from two different sides and are very vocal about that and feel affected if a firm is perceived to be on one side or, or the other. And if you look at all the, the the other things which have been on the firm's agenda over the last kind of three or four years, you've got the Ukraine war, George Floyd, Sarah Everard. There's a clear right and wrong in 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 each of those or each you know each of those cases. And the decision has been: should we say something about this or not? But what you say has been pretty pretty clear, you know, because mm. there's a, a clear sense of right and wrong. But here, you know, there are voices in firms that do see right and wrong differently or the two sides very differently and it's yeah. it's it's really really tough i think for comms people and law firm leaders to kind of get this right um yeah definitely definitely um yeah no it, it was a, an interesting piece and i guess a lot of that could also apply to the uk at the moment with you know all the issues that have recently come to light with you know the ronda the ronda plan and all that stuff again upholding the rule of law it's almost more important in a way because it's not about money, but it's about making sure that people <laughs> live in in a country that respects their rights and freedoms. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, fascinating piece. Um, I think I would add one. on it. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I think I think I would add on that. It's really important from a, I guess, from our own brand perspective. We're not we're not political beasts, you know, but we are focus on the legal on the legal sector and therefore the law in and of itself and the rule of law is really super important to us and where we will always land um you know as a, as as an agency and i think as individuals is that the rule of law is the most in, most important thing so i think when we're discussing these issues that's where we're really really focused and um the the you know the rwanda decision in the in the in, in the week uh it was just good to see the rule of law being robustly defended yeah. and applied. And I think we can all get behind that. Yeah, definitely. Um, next story. Um, so, I mean, as everyone knows, a <laughs> uh, was going through a bit of a pickle um, with this uh, ransomware attack. Um, they've only got a few days now. I'm not sure actually uh, how many days left, um, but, um, you know, they're most likely negotiating to kind of pay uh, some kind of ransom. Um, we don't have figures. Law.com reports that um, you know it's it would be somewhere in between 42 and 62 mil. Um, 
again, that's not been verified in any way. Um, but it's quite significant, obviously. And, and uh, as I was saying to Ben earlier before we recorded, it, it couldn't come at a worse time for them, considering that they've got all these kind of processes to go through to get the merger happening. Um, so really unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if, if what you wanted to say really bit on this. Um, so a few things. I think the first thing that's the most important thing is we're not going to start talking about what may or may not have happened within within AO. But what I can say for sure is that they will have really, really robust cyber defenses. They will throw a lot of time, effort, resource and money at it. All, all big law firms do. Uh, unless you've worked in one, you don't kind of realize the, the, the extent of it. So they will have been absolutely on it. So really what we want to talk about now is optics. Uh, but also, uh, from a from a communications perspective, I think there was an initial piece in the FT, but there hasn't been a huge amount of coverage on this when you compare it to the, the famous DLA hack of, gosh, that's probably about four or five years ago now. And I think what that tells you is that um, cyber hacks are almost priced in, aren't they, to uh, you know a law firm's existence. And there's less sort of drama, shock, horror around it. But as you said, I mean, the speculation is that the, the, the ransom for ANO could be between 42, and 42 million and 62 million. Um, and uh, Jack Womack wrote, I thought, a pretty quite entertaining um, Q&A with a cyber expert uh, in law.com yesterday, uh, where there was a very interesting kind of Q&A there. Uh, but you kind of think, wow, this is, you know, big numbers and a big, a big story. But Cyber, yeah, cyber attacks in and of themselves are are so regular now across every every walk of life that the fact one has happened to probably, you know, one of the most high profile firms in the world is generating far less column inches than it than it, than it was. So I mm -hmm. think from a reputational perspective, it's good that this didn't happen four years ago when they were trying to, you know, if they were trying to merge four years ago with, you know, Shimon and Melvin whoever. Um, and hopefully what will happen is that A&O you know, will sort it out in which, whichever way they need to, and then the merger can come, you know, con, con, continue. But uh, but I'm just kind of struck by how little coverage, you know, in real terms it's, it's received over the last 10 days or so. I agree, especially when you consider that actually they're going to have to pay up for this. So it's kind of, you know, it's not just a, you know, a hack and they got rid of the, the issue very quickly. It's It's actually... It's a deeper thing, um, and it it actually will have an impact on the firm. Um, I mean, I think if I remember from the original coverage of of them being, you know, um, hacked themselves, it's kind of clients don't seem to be affected, which is really lucky. Um, and and again, I think if from a journalistic perspective, I think if clients had been affected, you know, it would be a much bigger story because you'd see a bunch of lawsuits coming through. Um, but it doesn't seem to be the case here. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really lucky. Uh, and, and yeah, it's it's just really interesting that, yeah, as you say, it's not been as picked up as we thought it could have been or it would have been at least several years ago. So I'm um, not sure why that is. Uh, but in a way, I guess um, this is not the sort of publicity any firm would want. So, so uh, it kind of works for the better, I guess. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, so this week there were a couple of um, interesting pieces in um, uh, the brief uh, from the Times, uh, but I'm only going to focus on one, uh, and it was 
an op-ed by Dipti Hunter, a partner at Keaton Harrison. Um, and uh, she was basically arguing in her piece that um, giving female lawyers uh, too much paid leave and male lawyers too little might be why there's so many few that become partners. And it's really interesting because obviously, you know, most solicitors are women in this country, uh, yet very few end up being um, on the equity kind of partner level side uh, compared to men. Um, and obviously, there are still some barriers there, including motherhood and all that. And and what's interesting to me is I've always thought that personally in terms of when you hear about kind of parental leave and women are given a year and guys are given, you know, two weeks or something and some firms give them up to three months or whatever. But to me, it's still kind of I, I don't understand why you just don't have the same amount for both people, because parenthood, regardless, regardless of whether a woman is breastfeeding and needs to be around the baby, to me, it's just if you're a parent there's two there's two parents so if you're a parent you should be ha you should be given the same amount of um time to bond with your baby and to you know see them grow up a little bit uh regardless of your gender and regardless of your role as the parent and and to me it's it's i've always thought it was kind of a problematic thing it's not just for law it's kind of in a wider society that we don't have those systems in place across countries that we still see the early parenthood kind of thing as a woman issue as something a problem for them to solve rather than the kind of co-parenting actually exercise so it's really fascinating and so yeah in the piece she goes on to say you know you know part of the it's, it's one of the reasons why you know we have so very few women partners especially at equity level uh still in this country is that there are bar barriers that are you know faced by those types of gendered issues um, and actually, maybe we should have a different approach to these kind of initiatives that are put in place, which, you know, are great, but but there's definitely more that could be done. Uh, and I, I definitely agree. Ben, I don't know what your thoughts are. So I thought the piece was good. I uh, I, I found it very thoughtful. Uh, but I was also struck that it could have been written 20 years ago as well, which tells us not that the piece is archaic, but not a lot has changed. Definitely. Uh, I, and I think that, you know, conversations about gender equality, fairness and all that stuff in, in firms have stalled a little bit, haven't they? I mean, we had the gender pay gap, which was which was introduced in whenever it was. I can't remember, I'm afraid, but I think it was about five, five, six years ago. And that shone a huge amount of light on what law firms were, were doing and not doing in terms of you know, making things feel fairer for, for both genders. And if you look at firms' gender pay gap reports, uh, they're reasonably quite short, but they're backed up by initiatives and all that sort of, you know, all, all that kind of thing. Uh, and you just don't hear so much about it these days. And it feels a little bit superseded by some of the so socio-political things that we were talking about at the beginning of the, the, the pod. So it kind of struck me when we were preparing for this and also reading the piece that, you just don't read as much about, you know, attempts to make the firm fairer from a gender, for firms fairer from a, from a, from a gender perspective. And, and, you know, the numbers are still pretty stark, aren't they? Yeah. In terms of, you know, associates against partners and the gender, the, the gender split in the, in the, you know, in the biggest firms. What happens? And it's, it's, it's an issue that the firms haven't seemingly got any nearer to resolving. 
and you know i've been in law for quite some time and i remember talking about this in gosh the mid 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 to late 2000s and i'm not sure that the conversation has moved well not so much the conversation but that that what firms have achieved have moved on that much in in that period of of time which is sad yeah yeah absolutely i mean i'm not sure either to be honest um you know the the figures that come out every year are just really depressing and you don't actually see substantial change um which is a bit shocking and they introduce these initiatives and 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 whatnot and you know it's welcome but i i still think there's a real lack of understanding of the core issues and, and i'm and i'm not sure why that is it's not rocket science <laughs> um it's not rocket science and you could have solutions there that could be presented to kind of in the long run it wouldn't it wouldn't happen overnight but to kind of make it fairer for everyone because it's it's also about men it's not just about women accessing those levels it's also about kind of you know having different roles in your life and being a lawyer and being a mother is one but equally being a father is one too so i'm just confused as to why that's not talked about a bit more um and I, I, yeah i just think it's it should be a shared kind of responsibility type of thing personally i don't i don't see why we're still living in a place where we think that parent parenthood responsibilities should rely primarily on the mother it's really problematic as a society i think and 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 it shows in business life as well um and in the types of policies that government put into place and initiatives that firms put into place it's just you you can still clearly see the issue there and it's yeah it's a bit frightening to me but yeah um so on that note um i think that's it for this week okay. um Thank you for joining um, and uh, thank you to the listeners for joining us as well. Uh, we're on Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and uh, I guess we'll be back next week for another episode. You've been listening to Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week. We'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.